Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. Greetings, Hushlings. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and the dark truths you've been searching for. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And we're joined, as always, by our little demonic pal, Slick Frank Sanders. Slick Frank Sanders, the mad maniac or whatever, here. What's going on, Mike? Dave? <laughs> Good morning. Such a swell day. Yes. A lot of things going on today. A lot of things to get to. Hushlings, you're in for it. This week for Debriefing 35, we are opening the files of true crime into demonic possession-driven murders. Yes, Hushlings, this week we are getting into three, you heard right, three different cases of true crime where the murderer claimed to be possessed by demons and or the devil. But before we open ourselves up to evil, make sure to follow us on all social medias. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the official website of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, www.hushhushsociety.com. And when you head over there, you can listen to all of our episodes you can read up on some of our blogs that we've put out, and you can even drop a review. You can also obtain the drippiest of the drip, the flyest threads, Hush Hush Apparel. And one more thing, Hushlings, before we get into today's debriefing. Not sure if you know the date, but it is November 1st. Today is the inaugural day of the Hush Hush Society Patreon page. So we have opened up two separate pay tiers, one for $3 a month, one for $5 a month. You can pay month after month, or you could just do one month at a time, whenever you feel like it. And you'll get all the back catalog of new segments that we are releasing with the Patreon, including uh, some cryptid erotica. We have the new Frank Factor, 
Just going to focus on some of the up-to-date conspiracies that are going on, a little bit of news that might have to go and make you scratch your head. And also, a couple other things. We'll have episode shoutouts for those hushlings that subscribe. You will get access to our Discord, where weekly we will be watching The X-Files. Yes, 10 whole seasons of The X-Files. We will watch week after week. We'll have a watch-along. We'll have our chats open on the Discord. You can join in and chat with us. Watch Spooky Mulder take on some investigations. I hope you're in it for the long haul because it's going to take like 10 years for us to get some dedication right there. It's going to take a really long time. Trust me, I binged all 10 seasons of The X-Files, including the two movies, which we will, I'm sure, watch. Yes. And it took quite a long time. There's like 20-something episodes per season, except the last season, I think it's like 10 episodes. But either way, yeah. In order to find our Patreon page, just head over to patreon.com forward slash hush hush society. And from there, you will see the tiers, everything that they include, everything that you could ever want from our show in terms of extras. It'll be updated every month. We will put new segments out and new sound clips. We will have bonus episodes. So there's a lot of stuff going on over at the Patreon. So make sure you check that out today. And we hope to see you guys in the in the bonus stacks. That was beautifully put, Mike. Let's get demonic. Let's talk about our guy, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. Arnie? Arnie is a great name. Is it short for Arnold? It's Arnold, right? I don't think so. No, it's just Arnie. Oh, shit. Just Arnie. Yeah, it's a unique name. As Frank says, close your eyes, right? Yeah. Think back. Think about the setting. The year is 1980, in the small town of Brookfield, Connecticut. The Glatzel family had arrived to clean and organize a rental house they had recently purchased. Shortly after they arrived, a peculiar series of events began to unfold, heralding the start of the lunacy that was about to spiral out of control. The first incidents occurred when 11-year-old David Glatzel was pushed around by an unknown force. David went on to inform his mother that he was shoved by, quote, an elderly man with burnt skin. The old man growled, beware, while pointing a finger at David. He began waking up in the middle of the night, sobbing hysterically, and when asked what had happened, he described being visited in the darkness by an old man with dead black eyes, sharp jagged teeth, pointed ears, and hooves. The frightening creature, according to David, was constantly warning him that if they moved into the rental house, they would be harmed. Soon David was seeing the old man during the day. The apparition would sometimes yell in a foreign language and threaten to kidnap David's soul. That's heavy. It's kind of scary. And if you don't know this story, Hushlings, it's based... They created a movie based off of this story. The most recent Conjuring. Oh, that's... Oh, uh, no Conjuring, the, the devil made me do it. Yeah, so this story is in that movie. The movie's based off of this, so... Hmm. It's pretty creepy. Well, the eerie visits were followed by a variety of strange events throughout the house, including unexplainable footsteps, door slamming, and phantom voices. Phantom voices is scary. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Dude, voices out of nowhere that you're just hearing, like, down the hallway? Uh, fuck yeah. that, dude. Burn the house down. Yeah. Well, I've heard footsteps in my dad's old house quite a few times. Yeah, and that was a creepy house at night, too. It was. It was. 
but every floor was super creaky. So you knew, even if it was if it was anything walking, you knew where anybody was. You could wake up the neighborhood with the basement stairs. <laughs> that's true. After living in that house in Plainville, going through all of that stuff, that's my biggest fear when buying a house, buying a haunted house. That's terrifying. Things began to turn for the worst for David. Poor Dave. Mysterious wounds such as scratches, slashes, and bruises appeared on his body for no apparent reason, and his night terrors deteriorated to the point where he would wake up wailing in terror almost every night. Fuck that, dude. Just leave. Just yep, leave. Yep, I'd be out. You start getting cuts? No, it's not. Oh, he's vigorous. He's scratching himself at night. No, no, no. <laughs> that. You're missing the point. The parents want a good return on investment for this rental house. So the best way to do it is to move in while you're renovating. Then you find yourself a house. You get out of it. You rent out the rental house. Then you flip it. Real estate agent Mike. <laughs> the mother even alleged to having witnessed her son being strangled by hidden hands or flopping about on his bed like a rag doll at one point. David had also gained a significant amount of weight in a very short span of time, reportedly becoming exceedingly obese and gaining 60 pounds in just a few months. When I was reading about this, that was something that was kind of peculiar to me is that the weight gain. That seemed kind of unique to me in this story because I had never heard of a possession or anything of the sort that involved weight gain. Usually it's weight loss. Yeah. Like we had talked about with Annalise McCall. Yeah. yeah. You know, she lost a bunch of weight, but this kid actually goes on to gain weight. And I'm wondering if maybe during his possession or whatever was going on with him that it was just like really fucking with his mental state and mm -hmm. causing him to become depressed or causing him to just stress eat yeah i was yeah. just about to say maybe stress eat how old is this kid he's 11 oh, okay so D david at the time was 11 years old well maybe the demon that was possessing him just wanted a heftier body <laughs> that's also possible i feel like each demon in their possession could definitely have different motives the weight loss with most possessions, maybe they're just trying to like do harm. They don't care about the host body, but maybe this one wanted some heft on it. Some throwing around weight? Yeah. <laughs> really deal the damage to the bed when you're ragdolling around. <laughs> yeah. The Glatzel family begged the church for help, and they were led to two demonologists and exorcists named Ed and Lorraine Warren as we know the Warrens to be today. The Warrens' appearance seemed to coincide with the upsurge in weird incidents and odd behavior on David's part. He began to have unexpected seizures and fits or convulsions requiring him to be restrained at times. He would also growl, screech, or spit at people, and it reached to the point someone was always awake while David slept, just in case he had seizures. The youngster was also known to start unexpectedly quoting Bible passages or speaking in voices that were not his own. Like his voice changed? Yeah. That's creepy. One other thing that I read about is that he was quoting Paradise Lost. Really? It's pretty heavy reading if you've never read it. So for an 11 year old to be quoting it, it speaks to something there. That's weird. Around this time, the Glatzel's daughter, well, they have a daughter, Deborah and David. <laughs> <laughs> Such Connecticut names. Yeah. Little Deborah, little David. Deborah asked her fiance, Arnie, 
to move into the house. In the following months, the generally quiet and placid David was also alleged to have begun talking about murders and stabbings, which frightened both the family and the Warrens even more. Think about that. Your 11-year-old's just like, stab, 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 stab. What's even worse is that your 11-year-old with added 60 poundage to him and flops around... Like a ragdoll and speaks in other languages and in other tones is now talking about murders. Mm -hmm. He's so dense. You can't stop him. I don't know. When that kid was like 75 pounds, I could have kicked him in the fucking chest. But now, dude, he's a hefty 170 and he's ready to go. (laughs) The exorcist asked David who was present during one of his episodes and he answered 43 distinct names implying that there were 43 demons reportedly residing inside of him that's why he gained 60 pounds there's 43 demons in him (laughs) there's 43 different fucking people inside you yeah of course he's gonna gain weight one demon just sucks your soul these guys are just like (laughs) you got tons of them That's always been a really confusing thing to me when it comes to possessions. When there's reportedly multiple demons inside of one host body, in this case, an alleged 43 demons. Now, how do you think that works? Do you think one kind of blasts through the doors and just kind of makes way for the other 42? I think it's kind of like all of your eggs in one basket sort of deal. I feel like they'd have better odds at achieving whatever it is they're trying to achieve if they went to 43 different hosts and not all inside of one fighting for one plot of um, 11-year-old child. We got to think about what demonic possession really could be, though. Like, we have to ask that question. Are you implying temporal lobe epilepsy? No. But it could be schizophrenia. It could be something psychological with humans, but could it actually be something that, like we've talked about in the past, interdimensional? And people take it in the context with religion. So you have that mashup with it too. And the Warrens, as much as they were like demonologists and exorcists, they were also heavily religious. Yeah. And we can see that the Glatzels were also religious where they were begging for help from the church. If you're looking at it that way, then of course it's interpreted as a religious thing. But to get to what Frank was saying, it would also make sense that maybe these 43 entities all kind of enter the body at the same time under one entity. So maybe it's just one entity that comes in that kind of morphs or carries others on his back or within himself, itself, and then they all disperse once they're in his body or they take turns controlling him. Fucking run train on his body. (laughs) Realistically, that's what they would have to do. It's not like all 43 could take control of him at the same time. So they would almost have to take turns really controlling what he was doing and what he was saying and what was going on it's it's so confusing to try to figure out they're all storing themselves in his 60 extra pounds yeah well that's (laughs) what i would imagine during the exorcisms the evil inside david started to refer to itself as the master or the beast Arnie had become exhausted with the situation, and on several occasions he shouted and taunted the demons, telling them to leave him alone, and asking them to come into him. What a martyr. Yeah, right? Well, Arnie, Arnie was a hero, man. Leave that boy alone! That was part of the reason that Deborah had asked him to move into the house, is for like a safety thing. Of course, when you're looking at your 11-year-old brother, 
and he's in the basement fucking lifting 400 pound weights. <laughs> Just getting yoked. Getting yoked up with dead eyes and fucking speaking in different languages. I'd ask my boyfriend to move in too. <laughs> now, I feel like if that's really the case, if this really happened and Artie does go on to be possessed after pretty much asking for it, I feel like that kind of clears out the scenario of him being schizophrenic or some sort of epilepsy or something along that sort. Mm. Like, I feel like that brings a whole lot more validity to it. Yeah, and we're not dealing with the tainted bread this time either, so. That brings up another point. Hushlings, we're going to do something a little different with this episode. At the end of each story, we're going to give our brief final thoughts on mm, just each cool. individual story instead of taking on the whole thing at the end. So at the end of this story, I have some thoughts on what possibly could have happened. Let's go. At one point, Arnie had made eye contact with David or the demons inside him. Shortly after, Arnie crashed his car into a tree, claiming the demons were inside him and had taken control of the wheel. David was eventually moved into a school for troubled children. Arnie and Deborah moved out and into an apartment near the Brookfield Pet Motel where Deborah had gotten a job. The Warrens had told the family during the exorcisms and because they had gone through a few exorcism rites with David and during those rituals they had told the family okay you can't make eye contact with David don't talk to the demons directly and as we see Arnie didn't listen to any of that because he used to talk shit to the demons and then made eye contact with David and they think that this was kind of the contact point where Arnie had been possessed himself okay now our boy Alan Bono the manager and the owner of the pet motel, as well as the landlord of the flat that they had moved into, would become friends with the couple. In the following weeks, Arnie would become very irritable, and even go into fits of growling and snarling. There's your definitive jump from host to host. Arnie would state the beast was staring at him and often have zero recollection of those outbursts. And tragic events occurred on February 16th in 1981. Johnson called in sick from his job and had lunch with Debbie and Bono where they allegedly all drank extensively and got wasted. They went to the apartment after the party to hang out. And during the chat, Johnson and Bono got into a nasty altercation. Oh shit. During the encounter, Johnson apparently went into one of his trances. After which he began snarling like an animal and pulled out a folding 5 inch knife which he used to violently and repeatedly stab Bono, who died some hours later at a hospital from his wounds. Johnson, who had no previous criminal record, had fled the scene, was captured many miles away, and charged with first-degree murder. That's bananas. Arnie had no recollection of the events. Lorraine Warren said a day after the murder that Johnson was possessed by demons at the time of the murder, and that David Glatzel said he saw the demons leave him and enter Johnson's body. The defense of demon possession would be used in Arnie's case and turned down by Judge Robert Callahan. Martin Manella, Johnson's attorney, then claimed self-defense. On November 24, 1981, Arnie Johnson was found guilty of first-degree manslaughter. Manslaughter? I guess that self-defense plea really worked. He would go on to serve five of his 10 to 20 year sentence. 
So reading further on this, Arnie was released after five years for for being a good prisoner, I guess, or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, the reason that the judge has said that demon possession was not a viable defense was because it wasn't something that they could definitively determine. So there's no evidence of it. There's no hard evidence that they could say, oh yeah, he was definitely possessed by a demon. So the mm -hmm. judge was like, nah, fuck that throw that out and uh i guess the the self-defense plea kind of worked because first degree murder at the time of the 80s he definitely would have gone to jail for life them giving him some sort of like 10 to 20 year range of sentence was directly correlated to the manslaughter charge and the manslaughter charge was given because of the self-defense because the defense attorney probably said that bono had came after him and that they were fighting and he had no choice and whatever whatever do you know how many times he stabbed him i didn't find anything that said how many times he stabbed him but i'm guessing it was a lot if you watch the conjuring movie he stabbed him like 80 fucking times but yeah i'm also not sure if that's something that they played up just for the movie or whatever let's look at this case dave give me your thoughts on this case it's a weird one because you have multiple people affected by the same things. It's either ergot poisoning, which I doubt it, because <laughs> it's only them. And they're referring to the same things. And if Arnie was normal up until the point of moving into that house and then literally summoning the demons to enter him, I'd say there's something to this case. And then the whole stabbing event, maybe he didn't drink a lot and drank that night and got over the top and that shit happened. But... He didn't remember it. He could have been blacked out, or he could have had a demon possessing him. I think this one, this one can swing both ways. The Warrens don't, I mean, they have a lot to do with it, but there's other cases that they have done that are kind of like, eh, we don't know if that's kind of real. So they're, they're really not a part of this one for me. It's more of the sense of, like Frank said, if it jumps from the next person to another person, then that's kind of definitive that there's something going on. I will disagree with that at least part of it i honestly believe that the entire basis of a demon possession came from the warrens hmm. you know i think maybe arnie might have had some issues going on and and may have psychologically thought that he was possessed and maybe that's why he was acting like a fucking asshole leading up to this situation but realistically i think that the warrens especially lorraine put into not only his head, but also the Glatzel's head that he was possessed by a demon. Because let's say that Lorraine hadn't stepped forward and hadn't said anything about him being possessed, then what would his defense have been? Would he himself had turned around and said I was possessed by a demon? Or would he have just said, well, we got really drunk, he pissed me off, we got into a fight and I stabbed him? Yeah, I see that point. I feel like Lorraine was directly the reason for this defense when it comes to david i feel like he was kind of a fucked up kid and at 11 years old that's kind of the time when you start to see in adolescence that they do have maybe mental issues or psychological issues or emotional issues that's when they really start to come forward is in like that breaking of the teen years and then what really solidifies that is, is them putting him into school for troubled children even after the situation he was possessed and then supposedly the demons passed on to arnie but even after the fact he was sent to that school and remained there 
Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. I think that David had had some sort of mental issues, um, some sort of behavioral issue. Arnie saw it as, yeah, this kid is possessed, and he took to heart what the Warren said, don't make eye contact. He made eye contact and thought that he was possessed and maybe kind of like in the back of his head was like, yeah, I'm possessed by demons and went and was a shitty driver, drove into a tree and was like, yeah, the, uh, the demons made me do that. And then he went and stabbed somebody and Lorraine was like, yeah, you're you're possessed. So, well, maybe he was just drunk the whole time crashing into a tree, too. Maybe he's just a shitty alcoholic. <laughs> The devil made me do it. Not very functional. He's just like he's just like, well, I can do this. Boom, tree. Well, I can do this. Stab, stab, stab. Never mind. Yeah, right. A couple crappy nights. Frank? Personally, I think little David was possessed. No matter your mental health issues at the age of 11, I can't see you reciting the Bible while having seizures and shit. Nor whatever that story that you said that he was reciting parts of that was like heavy reading of yeah, paradise loss. Yeah, that's rough. I, I can't see that being purely mental health issues. Maybe some of it, like you make really good points, the excessive weight gain through like possible stress eating, and then the fact that they sent him to that troubled youth home even after the demons allegedly left him. I think Arnie kind of probably did not take advantage of the situation, but get played up to the point where he was able to use it as an, as an excuse. The demons were making him do it. Um, maybe the Warrens shouldn't have jumped so quick to the point. Did they ever, like, perform exorcisms or exorcism rites on... On Arnie? Arnie. No. Which is even more troublesome because if you look at it, how did the demons leave his body? Yeah. Through his pocket knife? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it took an exorcism for David, and obviously the exorcism didn't work because he ends up in a troubled school. Yep. Arnie didn't go through an exorcism. He went to prison. Yeah, I guess you could say Arnie pretty much got away with murder. And, um, yeah. Agreed. Hushlings, we will return after these brief messages. Hushlings, we travel to San Diego and accompany the deputies of San Diego County Sheriff's Department on March 26th of 1997, who discovered the bodies of 39 active members of the group Heaven's Gate, including their founder, Marshall Applewhite and a house in Ranchero Santa Fe, California. They participated in a coordinated ritual mass suicide coinciding with the closest approach of the comet Hale-Bopp. Join us on Monday, November 15th for debriefing 36, Heaven's Gate. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. We are now going to get moving into our next story of demonic-driven murders. This next one involves Michael Taylor. Now, Michael Taylor was a normal 31-year-old man. He was married to Christine Taylor. They had five children together and led an ordinary life. 1974 was a period of high unemployment in Northern England, and he was hampered by a long-standing back injury which caused him to spend extended periods of time seeking work. When Michael became despondent and uneasy, a friend, Barbara Wardman, invited him to a prayer group at the Christian Fellowship Church, and Mary Robinson, a 22-year-old woman, led the prayer group. The very first night, she began to shake and convulse at some time throughout the evening, indicating the presence of the Holy Spirit was within her. 
See, fucking all religious people always. Oh God, it's inside me. Oh. <laughs> when another church member, Mavis Smith, began to <laughs> weep excessively, Mary knelt before her and began speaking in tongues to exorcise the woman. To the surprise of the congregation, Michael Taylor joined Mary in speaking in tongues and praying loudly. Michael Taylor grew enamored with Mary Robinson during the next six weeks, much to the displeasure of his wife Christine, obviously. Taylor and Robinson even sat awake all night once, making the sign of the cross over each other. Ugh, what weird foreplay. (laughs) (laughs) Christine reached a breaking point as Michael's behavior got increasingly out of character and alarming. She eventually confronted her husband in front of the Christian Fellowship Church's congregation, accusing him of having an affair with Mary. This drove Michael into a fit of rage, and he attacked Mary Robinson in front of the congregation. That's so weird. So you get you get an animal. Yeah, like your wife comes and she's like, "You're a cheater. You're fucking around with this." Well, they don't they don't sound like that. They're from England. (laughs) You can you can run run with that anyway, though. But like, but like, you're 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 fucking around with this chick. You're coming to church. You you and and by the way, Michael Taylor before this was not necessarily like a religious man. That should be noted. Michael Taylor was not religious before this. He was simply going because you know not being able to find work, and that's very stressful. He goes there and he joins the congregation. And the very first night, he starts speaking in quote tongues and praying with Mary, and then is obsessed with her and goes to church like every day for weeks afterwards. He's just trying to get that that holy poon. The forbidden fruit. He would come to the church the next day and be forgiven by Mary. West Yorkshire police got a phone call at 9.45 a.m. on October 6th of 1974. A man was seen nude and coated in red paint, strolling around the streets of Asset. When the police arrived at the scene, they saw a naked male, curled in the fetal position, covered in blood rather than red paint. As the police approached, the man began to shout, It's Satan's blood! It's Satan's blood! Officers were immediately dispatched to Michael's home. So already this is like a really fucked up scene. Maybe it was just like a crackhead. That's what I would have thought. Covered in red paint in the morning, naked, running down the street. He was huffing red spray paint. (laughs) Police entered the home where Mrs. Christine Taylor, Michael's wife, and their small dog were found dead. The coroner would say she was asphyxiated in her own blood. Brutal. Michael had ripped off her face, removing her tongue and gouged out her eyes. The dog had its legs torn from the sockets and also had its eyes gouged and tongue ripped out. Oof. What was unknown until later was the fact that Michael Taylor had undergone a ritual exorcism the night before. The exorcism began on Saturday, October 5th, 1974, at St. Thames Church in Yorkshire. Taylor was subjected to unspeakable suffering for the following seven hours. He began to spit, scream, bite, and scratch as soon as the exorcism began. He was eventually shackled to the church floor to keep him from attacking the two priests. He continued to convulse despite being showered in holy water and having crucifixes placed on his body. Taylor's soul was said to be inhabited by over 40 demons. See, another one with a lot of demons inside him. Another one. I just feel like it's all the eggs in one basket. I feel like the demons could do better. When you think about exorcisms, at least from what we know of the exorcism rites, you have to know the names of the demons. 
-hmm. So if you know the names of the demons, then you can call the demons out and you can make them leave the body. So if there's 40 of them, that's a lot of demons to get the names from. Not every demon is going to be like, hey, my name's Bob. Why don't you exercise <laughs> me? Some demons are not going to say the name. They're going to have to do the, the whole rites and go through the whole rigmarole just to get the name from one of the demons. So the more demons, the harder it is to exercise. You're right. You're right. At least that's what, that's my take on it. So Fair enough. In the following trial, Taylor's defense would argue that the true guilt would lie with the priests that performed the exorcism. Michael Taylor was eventually judged not guilty of murder due to insanity. Christine Taylor's death was classified as a misadventure rather than a homicide. Taylor spent the following four years in a guarded psychiatric facility. He was released four years later, declared sane little tidbit about the priests. So the two priests, when they brought up the defense in the courts of blaming the two priests that had performed the exorcism, the church vehemently denied that there was an exorcism that happened. They stepped away from this entire court case. They said they had nothing to do with it. There were no priests. Uh, <laughs> they even went as far as to say that they were going to excommunicate the two priests if it was true that they had performed this exorcism because the church doesn't do that. It's very interesting how the church just kind of stepped away from this. And that's not far from what usually happens. If you look at a lot of these exorcisms, the church wants nothing to do with them. That was, again, something that we had said about Annalise, is that the church... At the end of it all, they were willing to do the exorcisms in secret, but at the end of it all said, no, we had nothing to do with it. Well, yeah, maybe once it went bad and this man murdered, what, two women and his dog? One, just his wife and his dog. Well, maybe once he murdered his wife and his dog, yeah, then they'd absolutely want nothing to do with it. Dave, do you have any final thoughts on this one? The guy was fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did like what a skinwalker would do without surgical precision. It's very crazy. I don't know. I think if he was possessed, he was possessed by some fucked up non-drunk demons. This was some real demonic shit. Other than that, he was crazy. Pretty simple from David. You know, I would also agree that it was kind of a crazy thing. Ultimately, I believe that this really came down to the fact that he had something for this Mary Robinson, the woman who was in charge of this prayer group, and Christine coming into the congregation and accusing him of all these things and accusing him of cheating. I think that might have sent him into a deep embarrassment, especially with Mary and especially with the congregation, and that just set him off. I think that was it. That was the one that made him start to act like a crazy person and act like he was possessed. And of course, again, the religious group jumps into this and says, yeah, you're possessed. You need to go through this exorcism and get rid of your demons. And I think it really boils down to Michael Taylor was just enamored in love with Mary Robinson and just wanted to be with her and best way to do that is just to lose your mind and then go and kill your wife uh, sadly Frank thoughts I'm kind of mixed up with this one I want to say I could see it going either way actually through possession or through insanity I don't know I feel like that's some vigorous activity for a man with a uh, long-lasting back problems to be ripping out eyeballs and tongues and stuff I feel like that's that's got to be hard for somebody with a back injury i can't be definitive with it because yeah obviously you either have to be insane or possessed to roam the streets and go into the fetal position naked covered in blood i feel like there's not necessarily enough 
evidence here to say it's definitely possession, especially because the church wants nothing to do with it and they denied that the possession ever happened. So that could all be gobbledygook. It might not be real. The exorcism might not have ever happened. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it was just insane. Very interesting. Oh, well, let's get into our final story. I will tell you right out, right, Hushlings, there was a lot of weird facts with this one. It was very much all over the place. The nights and events that led up to the eventual murders were very weird, and the story isn't very much a straight line. Put it together the best that we could so that you could understand the motions and actions of what led up to this. We're going to get into John Jenkin. On June 6, 2013, a man named John Jenkin from Cumbria, UK, tried committing suicide by drowning himself in a river. He would later approach a delivery driver, just down the way at the pier, with his hands in the air, screaming, I am armed, but it's not in my hands. The erratic behavior continued for Jenkins in the next day. Jenkins was later spotted in Hadsboro Nature Reserve with blood smeared across his forearms. He had cut himself using shells. Ouch. Eventually, authorities would find him and escort him to Dane Garth in Burroughs, where he would be assessed by the psychiatric staff. John would go on and tell the doctors that he had ingested LSD, alcohol, and marijuana. What a trio. It was the weed that did it. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> The night before, John had been drinking with friends. Witnesses told the court that he was heard in the earlier hours of the morning in a back alley stating in a weird language that he was possessed by demons and he said, I am the devil, I must confess. Jenkins was released from the facility in the following morning. The staff had determined Jenkins was of low risk and no harm to himself or others despite his recent self-harm and suicide attempt. Ooh, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. I'm thinking that they attributed this whole thing to his drugs, but at the same time, like, they knew that he was trying to commit suicide, and they knew that he had cut his arms with shells, of all things, at the nature preserve. Like, how do you just let him go less than a day later? He had come in that night, and you let him go in the morning. It said that he took LSD, right? Maybe they just kind of let him finish out his trip and let him go in the morning. I guess, but still, how do you not keep him there for some sort of psychiatric evaluation? Oh, this isn't because of the drug. You didn't try to <laughs> drown yourself in a river because of marijuana or LSD. You tried to do that before then, or yeah. you are fucked up in the head. <laughs> I mean, shells of all things. You ever step on a shell at oh, the beach yeah. and cut your foot open? It hurts like a bitch. After his ordeals, Jenkins would later say Alice McMeekin, his mother, became aggressive and overbearing on the morning of June 8th, 2013. Jenkins went downstairs and attacked his mother, Alice. He hit his mother with multiple blows to the head with an axe. Very Lizzie Borden-ish. Hearing the screams, John's sister Catherine came down the stairs and began to scream at the sight of her dead mother and axe-wielding brother. John then turned the axe on Catherine to stop her from screaming. Holy shit. Reports claim Jenkins also axed the family dog. The courts would later label the killings part of a schizophrenic episode, despite the rumors and confession of a possession. 
Cumbria coroner David Roberts stated that there was tension over why the police's worries about Jenkins' well-being were not relayed to health services following his attempted suicide. Former PC Ronald Vaughn stated that he did not believe Jenkins would cause any harm to anyone. Mm. Jenkins was charged with murder and eventually pleaded guilty to two counts of manslaughter based on diminished capacity. Jenkins would go on to agree with the schizophrenic episode argument. He was sentenced to a life sentence and a hospital order to be served at Ashworth Hospital for a minimum of 12 years. Woo. This is a tough, this is a rough one. This is a rough one. Yeah. You know, you, you have, you have this first case that involves the killing of a stranger, essentially. Um, then you have this next case, which is killing your wife. Um, and then this is the, this is the only case that involves killing your family. So this, this dude not only killed his mother and his sister, but also killed his mother and his sister with an ax. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. I just think it's such a weird turn of events from everything sort of being pointed inward self-harm he's trying to kill himself to going and axing down your family yeah like it said after his suicide attempt he thought that his mom was kind of being overbearing with him but realistically like any mother that cares about you if they find out that you had just tried to kill yourself or at one point tried to kill yourself of course they're gonna be like hey where are you what are you doing are you okay they're gonna yeah. be all over you that makes it even worse is that he interpreted that as like, hey, you're being a bitch. When in reality, it was, you know, I care about you. I don't want you to be off somewhere killing yourself. I want to keep in contact with you. I don't know. That's a, that's a rough one. What is it with these people killing their dogs? You kill the people and then what? The dog watched. So you got to kill the dog, too. I noticed that also, and looking into a couple of other like demonic possession murders, it's kind of a an ongoing thing with the dog. Now I know one of the bigger cases of the devil made me do it kind of thing is uh, the son of Sam. So the son of Sam used to say that dogs were like the devil, and the dogs were telling him to commit murder. Didn't he, like, admit that was bullshit, though? Uh, I mean, it was still brought up. I'm just wondering, maybe there is something to do with dogs? Uh, not necessarily maybe with possession, but maybe just the way that they're interpreting the dog being there. And like you said, maybe it is something like, oh, you saw me commit these murders and somewhere in the in in their fucking gray matter, they're like, oh, got to get rid of all the witnesses, <laughs> yeah. which kind of sucks. You, you know, it definitely sucks that you're going to kill your dog. But I mean, it's it's worse that you're killing your mother and your sister. Yeah, I know, absolutely. I just, I don't know. My final thoughts on this. He was sentenced to a life sentence in a psychiatric hospital, correct? It was a schizophrenic episode. I would say this kid was definitely mentally ill. Yielding an axe and killing your sister and your mother is definitely one of the craziest things you can talk about. Pretty crazy next to somebody gouging out eyes in the previous story. But I'd say this one was probably less demonic possession, more just psychological pretty short and sweet on that one i think this dude was severely messed up in the head this one of all three i think is 
the most likely that it was a severe mental health issue. Yeah. With him trying to kill himself and the things that he was saying and cutting himself up and then going home and just like randomly out of nowhere, just going downstairs and just axing his mother and then axing his sister and then axing the dog. It's, uh, I'm thinking that schizophrenic plea was definitely um, in the right realm. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. It's, I don't know. I just feel like it turned so fast, like I said, from self-harm to axing down your family. But besides the point, I think they should use this case in D.A.R.E. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Don't ingest LSD, alcohol, and marijuana all at the same time. It might be a blast or you might ax down your family. Terrible. Oh, boy. Well, that's going to do it. Hushlings for debriefing 35... What were your thoughts? Did we miss anything? Is there anything that we should have discussed? Should we have opened our hearts to Jesus? Reach out to us. You can hit us up at contact at hushhushsociety.com. Join us for our next debriefing, Heaven's Gate, streaming everywhere, Monday, November 15th. Ooh, that's going to be a good one. We're getting into the cults, baby. Oh yeah. Getting into cults. Drink the Kool-Aid. I'm heavy on Colts, so we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be feeling good about this one. It's gonna be good. Put on your tracksuits, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm fresh white Nikes. <laughs> yeah. And again, hushlings, we just want to remind you: today is the day, the first day of the Hush Hush Society Patreon. Head on over to Patreon.com. Look up Hush Hush Society. You'll find all the tiers. You'll see all the cool stuff. See our day one things. Yeah, enjoy. Get back to us. Let us know what you think. If there's anything on the Patreon that you would like to see uh, different or changed or more of, definitely let us know. Reach out to us. Hit up our email. Again, that's contact at hushhushsociety.com. Thank you again, Hushlings, for joining the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I am Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.